You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Your DNA reflects hundreds of thousands of years of hominid evolution, and encountering Neanderthals was part of the story. Your genes contain a record of that ancient liaison. You have a few percent of Neanderthal DNA curled up in your cells. So why don't our Pleistocene kin get a little more respect? There's no way any kind of missing link type thing. And, you know, some people may have an idea that they are super primitive somewhere between, you know, other apes and us, and they're really not. Negative cliches persist, even while anthropological and genetic evidence about Neanderthals is forcing a radical rethink about their capabilities and their role in human evolution. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode evidence of a surprising connection between Neanderthal DNA and COVID and an experiment to grow miniature Neanderthal brains in the lab are two examples of how these ancient humans are still with us. Scientists say that these distant hominid relatives, besides being fascinating in their own right, have much to say about who we are. This episode is Neanderthal in the Family. Okay, let's clear up a few basic things from the mountain of misunderstanding about our Pleistocene cousins. First, Neanderthals were humans, archaic humans called Homo neanderthalensis, but yes, humans. And also, in case you haven't heard, Neanderthals interbred with our species, Homo sapiens, for much of the 300,000 years that they lived in Europe. Finally, concerning the question that we've learned is occasionally asked of anthropologists, namely, was Fred Flintstone a Neanderthal? The answer is no. He was a modern human. He drove a car. (laughs) These hominid relatives have defied convenient classification and forced a rethink about what it means to be human from the moment the first fossils were discovered. That was relatively recently in 1856 in a cave in the Neander Valley in Germany. Neanderthals have been there since the beginning of our sort of exploration of human origins and human evolution. They were the first hominin that we discovered and realized what it was, that it was another kind of ancient sort of human. And so they were like the original other that we have measured ourselves against for over 160 years. Yet 
Who are these others now living on in our genes? Because while there was a genetic split from our common ancestor that took Neanderthals and Homo sapiens down differing evolutionary paths, scientists say that the split was occasionally breached. We didn't become separate species. Within our cells is evidence of interbreeding. Thankfully, a couple of years ago, we were able to sequence the Neanderthal genome. So what we can then do is to take your genome and compare it piece by piece to the Neanderthal genome. And if your genetic roots are in Europe or Asia, we will then find that there are chunks of your DNA that are several tens of thousands of letters long that match almost perfectly the Neanderthal genome. So if you're someone who feels a kinship with a relative who was a member of the Qing dynasty, or maybe one who fought in the French Revolution, well, why not with Neanderthals too? And the amount of DNA you then carry is sort of in the order, just in the amount, as if you had a Neanderthal ancestor six, seven generations back in your family tree. Neanderthal DNA makes up 1-2% to of the genes of those with European and Asian ancestry. It was thought to be limited to only those people, but recently that genetic spread has been increased to include Africans. As it turns out, even people from sub-Saharan backgrounds who were believed not to have Neanderthal DNA, they probably have, based on recent studies, actually received it from sort of later connections between populations. So it's part of a global history. And now we're learning what this murky history means for us today, in part thanks to paleogenetics and the man who founded the field. My name is Svante Pebel, and I'm an evolutionary geneticist at work at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany. Dr. Pabo and his team are learning that, contrary to being curious archaeological footnotes, Neanderthal DNA influences health and disease today, depending on what pieces of the DNA you carry. But most people carry different pieces from Neanderthals. So the pieces I carry are often different from the ones you carry. So just last year we found, for example, that quite a rare Neanderthal variant that some people carry is involved in pain sensation. So it encodes a receptor in your nerve cells, in your tissues, that initiate the sense of pain. And people who carry that variant are actually slightly more sensitive to pain. Now, in your recent work, and it's uh, gotten quite a bit of play, you've connected Neanderthal genetics to the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, what inspired you to, you know, look at any correlation between the two? Was it this fact that, you know, Neanderthal DNA is not silent? It can have effects such as you've mentioned about pain. Well, so um, some people in our lab were involved early on in the pandemic in a big international consortium that tried to find out why certain people become very sick or even die when infected with the virus, while others have very few symptoms or even no symptoms. And when one looks for the genetic signal involved in that, Late last spring, it became clear that on chromosome 3, there was one segment of the DNA that had a very big effect on this. On average, it doubles. If you have the risk variant at that part of your genome, it about doubles the overall risk of requiring intensive care when you're infected. 
And of course, since we have sequenced the Neanderthal genomes and are very interested in that, we sort of checked the Neanderthal genome in that region. And I must say, we almost fell off our chairs, so surprised were we, when we then found that that risk variant that confirms this risk comes from Neanderthals. So what you're saying is that a small bit of the DNA that we've inherited from the Neanderthals of, you know, 50, 100,000 years ago can worsen our outcomes if we contract COVID. Yes. And there is new, much more data now that was very recently became available that shows that if you're younger, if you're under 60 years of age, it's a very big factor. It's about four to five times bigger risk of becoming very severely ill. So this is something, you know, there are some things we've gotten from Neanderthals that we may be grateful for, that improves our lives in different ways. And this is certain something that you would more curse the Neanderthals for having given you. All right. Well, this is sort of an interesting story to, to hear that a set of people that disappeared 30,000 years ago, whenever it was, you know, they still could influence in a very, very important way your behaviors today. And indeed, as you say, I think it's fascinating that Neanderthals disappeared 40,000 years ago and they have suddenly big consequences for us in this very new pandemic. We did a very rough calculation about how many extra deaths can be attributed to this Neanderthal risk variant. And it's in the order of half a million extra deaths. If you look at the frequency of the risk variant and the incidence and mortality in different parts of the world. So it has tragic consequences actually today. But I should also say, I think that it's a complex thing. We have recently found another segment of the genome on chromosome 12 that also comes from Neanderthals. And that actually is helpful when you're infected. It protects you. You have about a 20% less chance to become severely ill. But unfortunately, the effect is much smaller, right? This bad thing on chromosome 3 from Neanderthals doubles your risk of becoming severely ill. The good one on chromosome 12 just reduces it by about 20%. But what if you have both? I mean, you could have both. Yes. Unfortunately, the effect size on the risk allele is about five times bigger than the protective sort of effect from the good part of it. So the bad guys outnumber the good guys. Yes, unfortunately. So Svante, this uh, effect in which, you know, a certain segment of the DNA from the Neanderthals can either improve your chances or worsen your chances, that doesn't necessarily reflect their experience with coronaviruses in general? Or is it, you know, just sort of an accident that, you know, blue eyes are more susceptible to certain diseases of the eye? It's an accident. Well, for this risk variant on chromosome 3, I would tend to say it's just an accident. There comes this new virus around now, and it happens to be very bad to carry this thing. That said, I think that that risk variant has had consequences in the past. There is probably some reason that 60% in South Asia people carry this. It was probably good for something. Maybe some other infectious disease. We've speculated about uh, cholera, for example, that's endemic in that region. And it's absent in China. 
perhaps you could speculate also, but this is a speculation, that other coronaviruses may have been endemic there and you may have had epidemics in the past. I mean, 16% of people of European ancestry carry this risk variant from Neanderthals. If you're from South Asia, if you're from Bangladesh, for example, up to 60% of people carry this. Whereas if you're from Japan or China, it's absent. No one carries it there, essentially. So it's clearly have changed a lot in frequency around the world as an indication that this has probably had consequences in the past, perhaps in other infections or so. So, so what you're saying is that uh, this sequence in our genomes might be a, a window into what sort of diseases people had to contend with 50,000 years ago. Yes, and I think that it would be hard to figure out. But, you know, for more recent historical times, where we have thousands of skeletons from the Stone Age and Bronze Age and Iron Age, where we can follow the frequency of such variants in present-day people, we can actually see that this variant increased, for example, after the Ice Age. And it may be possible in the future to correlate that, for example, with viruses you might retrieve from skeletons. That's a bit of pie in the sky, but I think we're on the verge of being able to do such things. But you've said, Svante, that, you know, the amount of Neanderthal DNA, it's not the same part of the genome for every person. You get a little bit of this and that person got a little bit of that. And if I want to know whether I have an enhanced or reduced chance of, of surviving COVID, how, how do I know? Do I have to just get my DNA sequence to know which part of this genome I got? And yes, I mean, you could sequence your DNA or you could uh, type for certain variants that are associated with this. Now, I would also say that I wouldn't really promote that as very important. I mean, age is still the biggest risk factor and male sex. After that, this may be the, one of the biggest risk factors. But, you know, it's not so interesting what genetic variant you carry because you can't change it. What you can change is your behavior. So that's what you should work with. Svante Papo, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Svante Papo is an evolutionary geneticist at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany. Neanderthals lived alongside us for hundreds of thousands of years. So why does the image of the knuckle-dragging primitive persist? There is very little difference in the kind of lives that they were living and the kind of things that they were doing and their technologies compared to early Homo sapiens people like us for almost all of that time. Why not get to know our intriguing relatives? It's Neanderthal in the family on Big Picture Science. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. 
From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. That's bluehost.com wondersuite. The stereotype of Neanderthals, or Neanderthals, you're going to hear both pronunciations in this episode, as being backward is so firmly ingrained that when President Biden recently scolded state governors with anti-mask policies for engaging in Neanderthal thinking, well, these governors chafed at the perceived insult. But others also chafed at the insult to Neanderthals. Oh, I thought it was terrible. They can't defend themselves and they get a bad rap like lawyers or mothers-in-law. My name is Doyle Stevick. I'm an associate professor of educational leadership and policies at the University of South Carolina. After reading their story about it, Doyle wrote a letter to the New York Times. They published it. And this is what he wrote. So the use of Neanderthal thinking to besmirch the Neanderthals is an injustice. They were in the business of inventing tools for survival, not rejecting them. Paleoarchaeologist Rebecca Rag Sykes was delighted to hear that Doyle stuck up for our Pleistocene cousins. It's refreshing. It's nice to have Neanderthals defended um, for once and for it to not be coming from archaeologists all the time. Well, Doyle may have been influenced by a certain member of his family. I am Beverly Brown, Professor Emerita of Anthropology at Rockland Community College, New York State. Professor Brown, Doyle's mother-in-law, was also motivated to refute the Neanderthal cliché. Oh, yes. My inclination was definitely to write. Not knowing that Doyle had already weighed in on the issue. Oh, I, I had no idea that he was going to write it. So I sent mine off in the morning. The Times editors now had a second email from the family, challenging the public perception that Neanderthal thinking was backwards thinking. Here's what Beverly wrote. For several hundred thousand years, the large-brained, brawny Neanderthals wandered together in small bands across Eurasia, skillfully designing tools and weapons for hunting, fishing and gathering, building fireplaces, caring for their sick and dying, occasionally creating small works of art, and painting cave walls. Beverly pressed send, then learned that Doyle had beaten her to it. And then I was reading the New York Times, And I saw he'd made it in the paper print. I was delighted. Whenever Neanderthals come up, uh, if we see an article in National Geographic or the Smithsonian, Bev gobbles it up. She gets a twinkle in her eye and uh, just delights in the Neanderthals. Well, I guess I've been drawn to them over the years, part because I felt they had gotten a bad rap even in the the 19th century. And it was... It was carrying on into the 20th century despite fines that were being made contrary to this very negative stereotype of kind of dim-brained individual. Oh, the Neanderthal stereotype is certainly one of uh, backwards, caveman, knuckle-dragging, but that image hasn't kept up with the research. Rooted, I think, in several things. One, a notion of human 
exceptionalism and also rooted in the early mistakes that were made in terms of putting the skeleton together and and understanding the brain capacity of Neanderthal. And so it became a very convenient way to insult people. You know, you're just like a Neanderthal. Thanks to Doyle Stevick and Beverly Brown for sharing two defenses of Neanderthals from one family. Hi, I'm Rebecca Rag Sykes. I'm an honorary fellow at the University of Liverpool, and I'm the author of Kindred Neanderthal Life, Love, Death and Art. What we understand now about Neanderthals is that they understood materials, actually. They were able to understand the differences in properties of different kinds of rocks or different kinds of wood. And yeah, they didn't only make tools from stone. They did make them from other substances, um, bone occasionally. And we have amazing finds, uh, for example, wooden spears, 330,000 years old, finely crafted. Um, so yeah, there is ample evidence that they were able to innovate through different materials and through time as well. They have their own culture history. So Neanderthals were cleverer than we give them credit for. Certainly their ability to adapt to local conditions allowed them to live from Wales to the Arabian desert to China. But would they have seemed radically different in other ways? What would Homo sapiens see if they spied a Neanderthal walking in the distance? It's interesting, you know, nobody's asked me about what would a Neanderthal look like from a distance. It's always like if you met one up close. And that's an interesting point, because if you saw a group of them, you know, walking across the ridge, I don't think they would immediately look very different. Um, They were completely as upright as us, fully bipedal, walking on two legs. There may have been slight differences in their gait, you know, in, in the stride, but I think it probably was pretty minimal. Overall, they would look like people, for sure. Then say you walked up to say hello. Close up, yes, there are differences. They are slightly shorter than us um, by a few inches on average. Their faces and their heads are perhaps one of the more distinctive parts. And They have very large faces, larger eyes, and the front of their face from sort of their nose to their mouth is just pulled slightly further forward. And they don't have a chin. You know, if you if you feel your chin, there is clearly a bony knobble there and they don't have that. And also in the hominid family, we are really the weird ones because we've got massive balloon shape sort of heads. It's very globular compared to all other kinds of hominins. And theirs is much more sort of swept back and they have a, a less vertical forehead than us. Dr. Rag Sykes wants our new understanding of Neanderthals to replace the tired, inaccurate cliches, which, as we've heard, say more about us than about them. She begins by sharing one of the more surprising things that we've learned recently. Ah, uh, the thing that comes to mind is that they tidied up after themselves. Um, <laughs> you know, they they didn't sort of live messily and randomly in the way that people might imagine like hyenas in a den you know because we know hyenas are living in caves in Eurasia at this time as well and sometimes it's the same caves although not at the same time um but yeah we can see that there is real spatial patterning inside the living sites of Neanderthals not only do they do different things in different parts of the cave 
but they actually have sort of junk areas, you know, like where they put their trash, basically. So we have in some well-preserved sites, we can see what really do look like just rubbish dumps of animal bones. Are you sure those weren't the teenage rooms for the teenage Neanderthals? <laughs> uh, well, they would be, they're sorting the bones by type, so I don't know what kind of teenagers do that. <laughs> what we're gathering from your description, that they're making thoughtful choices about the materials that they're using to create tools, it raises the question of whether that thoughtfulness extends to other areas. Did they express themselves through art, for example? Oh, well, I mean, that's one of the, the biggest questions, isn't it? Um, we might call those symbolic objects, or I like to use the word aesthetic. That's where it gets complicated. And if we really want to be sure that there is um, something else going on, then we need unusual objects, things that are um, distinctive, even in the Neanderthal world. So one of the best examples is a fossil shell from an Italian site that's about 55,000 years old. So first of all, that shell is nothing to do with food because it's a fossil. Um, that was brought in from probably about 100 kilometers away to that site. So there's no reason for that to have been brought for subsistence, anything like that. Secondly, it turned out on analysis of that shell that there is red pigment on the surface of it. And that pigment itself is not local to the cave. That comes from about 40 kilometres away. So you have two unusual substances in the same package. So do we assume that that was a jewellery or some sort of um, a ceremonial object? Well, what that was actually for, we don't know. Um, but Neanderthals, just as, as hunter-gatherers, they don't have easy means to carry stuff around the landscape. They have to carry it all on their own person. So they're not going to carry stuff around unless it has some kind of meaning. An object like that, if we found that in an early Homo sapiens site, we would immediately say, oh, this has some kind of social symbolic aspect to it. It had a social meaning. Perhaps it was a gift. Perhaps it was a toy made for a child. But in terms of its basic function, it certainly is something that is reflecting an aesthetic interest. You're, you're changing the surface by adding colour to it. Let's draw on one of the words in the title of your book, which is love. I mean, certainly you have love of Neanderthals, but I don't think that's the love that you're referring to. What could we possibly infer about the way that they loved? Yeah, this is a difficult question. And I think there's a couple of ways to, to go in at it. First is to look at the totality of our cultures and that really emotions and love actually, no matter if there's a logical explanation, emotions and love underlie huge amounts of, of what we do in our lives that's just what we are um, and one of the clearest ways that we can assess sort of emotional bonds is the reaction to death and if we look at what happens to the bodies of dead neanderthals there is something interesting happening there as well there's been debates for a long time about did they bury them or not and so far we don't see any neatly laid out graves as we see later on in early homo sapiens but what we do see are some intentional deposits of whole bodies and also bodies which were being taken apart um which is a whole other question as to how you interpret what that actually means but there's also quite a few very young neanderthals babies basically that died and we would expect those bodies to not be preserved very easily 
in normal circumstances they'd be eroded or eaten by predators or whatever um, but we have a number of them you know newborns basically so in those contexts where we have tiny little bodies that are laid out on the floor of a cave that is quite a statement of an emotional situation it may be an expression of grief and mourning of of processing what's happened and the severing of emotional bonds at death Yes, I think something is going on there. So even though the notion of taking apart a body seems quite a strange response to death from a Western perspective today, it's not necessarily actually a weird thing to do. We can see it historically in like saints relics and things. Um, There is a desire to keep parts of the body or to engage with the body. So for Neanderthals to butcher and take apart the remains of the dead um, maybe that's not so weird and it, and it would make sense within a framework of sort of the processing of grief, as you say. Neanderthal DNA entered the Homo sapien gene pool at some point, <laughs> as we know now. And that means that early Homo sapiens and Neanderthals had to interact. And do we have any idea? I mean, I guess that's the most, poli- you know, the most euphemistic way to put it. <laughs> they interacted, right? Do we have any idea how they would have interacted, like how that would have come about? And could they have loved each other on the subject of love? Could they have loved each other? What we know from the genetics is that um, most living people today do have a uh, legacy from Neanderthals. And as you say, you know, the question of how this comes about is really fascinating, very difficult. Um, We don't know is the answer. There's no reason to assume that it had to be based in violence or conflict or that this was some kind of non-consensual situation because we don't see any evidence for conflict between us and them based on what we see in the bones. It just isn't there. And I think the other aspect that comes in strongly here is the evidence for language. Um, And that has strengthened a lot Um, in the past 20 or 30 years. So now I think most archaeologists would accept that Neanderthals could make a similar range of sounds to us. There's just been a new study out confirming um, that their ears were basically tuned in to almost the exact same frequencies as ours, and including the sounds that we make for consonants, quiet ones like t, And those are sounds which are most useful in close interpersonal communication. You can't shout those, you know. So this is close talking language between people. And so at least the ability for them and us to understand each other in terms of the sounds was there. But what the content of the language was is the big question. And, you know, when groups met, I think we should assume that they certainly would have had very different vocal communication, but were they able to actually have a common understanding at some point after a little bit of gesturing and things? Um, Probably. And in fact, whether or not the situations that led to the creation of hybrid babies were consensual or not, the fact that hybrid infants were able to be raised and survive and actually have their own partners, otherwise that material would that genetic material wouldn't be in us today that does imply that there is some kind of shared cognitive level and probably that they did understand the language of the group that they were raised in do you think that the rethinking about neanderthals and their abilities 
um, would have gained the kind of momentum that it has had we not discovered that they are a part of us, or at least some of us. And I wonder if the fact that they're part of us forces a kind of reevaluation of their abilities. Yeah, I mean, I think for archaeologists, I think it it didn't really change that much because we we have <laughs> we have tried to be unbiased. Um, but in terms of how you know wider society views Neanderthals, definitely there has been a change. Um, you know, it is funny that people will still use that term to insult each other, but it's really fascinating. You know genetic testing and ancestry and stuff that's become big business you know people are very interested in that and it fascinates me that people seem quite proud to have neanderthal dna you know they'll say if i get emails and things about the book they'll say oh and i have i have two percent it's more than my friends have and things like this you know so i think there is there's a new connection there well finally rebecca one of the big questions among scientists who are looking for intelligent life elsewhere in the universe is, are we alone? Because it's it's fundamental, just as the question of where did we come from? We also want to know whether or not we're the only of our kind. And there was a time when um, we were not alone, Homo sapiens. There was another kind of hominid. And you bring up the SETI questions in, in your writing as well. And I'm just curious how the questions of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, Um, make their way into your thinking with regard to Neanderthals? I think it's interesting for two reasons. Um, One is is the assumption that we've had that, you know, we are somehow special and unique and, you know, that there could never have been anything like us on this planet. And it turns out, of course, not only were there Neanderthals um, who show us that there were other ways of being human, but in fact, over the period that they were around, there were other hominin species as well, that it was a busy planet. Um, you know, so there's that aspect. But also I find it really, really interesting from a a cultural perspective of how we dealt with finding Neanderthals and what they meant to us when we encountered them. And, you know, that's 160 years ago. We're still trying to position them as something below us, alien to us, all of this. Um, so I think they fulfill that role as the other and I think it's an interesting, I guess, a, a prior SETI experiment that we have already found another intelligence. And we know how re- we reacted to that, which was that we, we've spent um, a long time insulting them and trying to belittle them and <laughs> everything like this. So I think there are really fascinating parallels with SETI. Well, Rebecca Reg Sykes, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. A discussion with paleoanthropologist Rebecca Rag Sykes, author of Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death, and Art. Well, we can get to know Neanderthals by studying their fossils and cultural artifacts, but could we learn anything by studying their brain cells? What it means to grow them in a lab, next. All together now, it's Neanderthal in the family on Big Picture Science. A 
A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. So what first comes to mind if you hear that scientists are trying to grow Neanderthal brain cells in a lab? I would be shocked, frankly, if it were a scene from a 1953 movie, The Neanderthal Man. That would mean you willingly sat through that schlocky sci-fi flick, as I did when it first came out. (laughs) Well, I saw it recently, and I was encouraged by its elevated premise. Uh, Professor Groves explains his theory that because Neanderthals had bigger brains than Homo sapiens, they were more intelligent. Neanderthal man, size of brain. Impressive, is it not? And now for our glorious modern man, of whose species you all take such inordinate pride in being a part. Here is his skull, and here is his brain. Where is this devastating advance to Olympian mentality? But his idea is ridiculed. So, being the epitome of a mad scientist, Dr. Groves creates a serum to awaken the Neanderthal brain within him and teaches close-minded colleagues a thing or two. The embodiment of my theories of memory stimulation the reactivation of the dormant cells of the mind of man. Dormant cells? Man is not of himself. He's made of everything that has gone before. He's part of every ancestor he ever had back to the beginnings of his human intelligence. Kind of an interesting idea. But when his potion turns Dr. Gross not into a Neanderthal Einstein, but a growling and hirsute Dr. Hyde, Well, the movie devolves into a base cliché, and does so in low-budget mode, with an actor wearing a cheap shirt and an even cheaper rubber gorilla mask. I saw him. It was horrible. He was inhuman. He was more animal than man. (gasps) Spoiler here, Dr. Groves does meet his demise at the end of Neanderthal Man. But an interesting idea survives, that Neanderthals were not small-brained. My name is Alison Watery. I'm a neuroscientist and a professor at UC San Diego. The brains of uh, the Neanderthals and modern humans are probably around the same volume. It's debatable if they were a little bit larger than us. A bigger brain does not necessarily correlate with intelligence. There are actually bigger brains than modern humans uh, living, uh, probably Uh, The blue whale is the biggest brain that uh, we know of. We clearly have questions about Neanderthals' brains. Yes, they were different than our brains, but in what way? Dr. Mwatri is conducting an unusual experiment to get some answers by growing Neanderthal brain cells in its lab. Well, I mean, sort of, because after all, our Pleistocene cousins aren't here to provide us with any cells. So he's taken another approach. Which involves stem cells and gene editing. First, he gathers human cells to convert to stem cells. I can just take a piece of your skin or or your blood 
And by activating only four genes inside these cells, I can push these cells back to this uh, embryonic-like stage. So these are what we call induced pluripotent stem cells. Okay, so now he has cells that can become anything. He then uses a tool, enzyme-based CRISPR, to change a sequence in their DNA. So we go into the modern human genome and we use these enzymes to change their code. And now they start to express the archaic version of uh, certain genes or uh, the version that is found in the Neanderthals, but not in modern humans. Voila! He's got cells that are like the ones that produced a Neanderthal's brain. So now he grows organoids, which are smaller, simpler versions of an organ. These brain organoids are clusters of tissue that contain several types of nerve cells and can tell us something about how a real Neanderthal brain would develop. They start from single cells and they can grow up to 0.5 centimeter. Um, See, they stop growing because they are not fully vascularized, so there is no way for the nutrients to kind of penetrate the tissue and feed the cells to replicate and divide. He has now produced something remarkable, the neuronal lineage of a Neanderthal brain. So our question is, what make us, humans, or modern humans, so different than any other species? We found out from Dr. Moatri what happens next. And we can increase the complexity as we are learning more and more about them to a degree that some people call them mini-brains. I personally don't like this definition because it's not that we have a miniaturized brain inside the lab or in a dish, but we have a model uh, that's very useful, especially during very early neurodevelopment. How how many cells is in one of these things, typically? It's 2.5 millions of neurons. Okay, that's a significant amount of cells, at least from my point of view, as a non-expert. A couple of million cells in this thing that I can see, it's, it's, it's the size of a small pea or something like that. I mean, they're literally pea brains. So you're convincing these stem cells, kind of reprogram them so that they grow into brain cells, right? Yeah, and let me be very clear. I still don't have an Neanderthal cell. What I do have is a modern human cell where I added uh, specific genes towards the ancestral version. So it's more like a hybrid. It's It's still a modern human cell, but it's expressing the archaic version of certain genes. Okay, so, you know, you have these little quarter-inch size neophyte brains there, and, oh, these over here are from Homo sapiens, and those over there are essentially Neanderthals. Uh, Can you tell the difference by just looking at them? Yeah, surprisingly, we could, (laughs) because they show some very different morphology, and and the shape is, is just like a consequence of the organization of the cells inside the organoid. So most likely, the cells are migrating or self-arranging in a way that is different from what a modern human cell does. So that's quite important because it tells us that um, the genes that we are changing, the Neanderthal version of those genes, are changing the behavior of the brain cells during neurodevelopment. Well, that surely must have surprised you that the, the differences would be so so obvious that you could actually point to them and say, yeah, that's, that's Neanderthal and that's not. I think that was one of the uh, aha, eureka moments in the lab. We were never expected uh, to have uh, such a clear uh, phenotypes, that's how we call them, I mean, such, such obvious differences in morphology. And then we, we try to understand what is the mechanism? How come 
the shape of these organoids have changed so much. My goodness, okay, I, you know, not having the ability to look on a molecular level, if I were in your lab and you had, you know, gone on vacation for two weeks, I might be tempted to put these things under a microscope and see if I could see any morphological differences there. I'm, I'm sure you've done that. Is, is there anything to see? Yeah, yeah. So uh, under the microscope, you're going to see that uh, the shape of the neurons is slightly different from modern humans. Uh, for example, the number of synapses that they have, uh, the same developmental stage, we see that the number of synapses is slightly slower. And then if you zoom in, at the synaptic, exactly when the two neurons contact each other, that on the archaic version of uh, certain genes, these uh, synaptic contacts are different. Uh, so that tells us that the way the neurons are communicating or forming networks, um, it, it's different than modern human. Well, I, you know, I think the big question we're trying to get at is what were the you know, mental capabilities of these creatures, which disappeared 40,000 years ago. But I, I, I must say that it is very surprising to me that there were so many differences that you could just look at these things and see. I, I remember when Albert Einstein died. That was in the 1950s. And they took his brain out and looked at it to see if it looked any different than, you know, the brain of the next guy over <laughs> And it didn't, at least that that's what they said at the time. You know, oh, maybe there's a little more, you know, vasculature, maybe there more, there's a better blood supply, but, but basically it was the same brain. But you're saying that the Neanderthal brains really are different even at a morphological level. In, in, in other words, they're different enough that you can just see them. Yeah, yeah. But uh, just to remember that what we have is a very reductionist model. Uh, so the organoids uh, contain only a couple of million of neurons. The human brain has 86 billions of neurons. So there are uh, several orders of magnitude difference. Well, what about their performance? I, I think I understand that you built a walking robot and connected some of these miniature brains to the robot. Maybe you could describe what you're doing there. So we thought that perhaps we could uh, use some kind of uh, interface with a robotic platform, not only to stimulate these organoids, but also to understand the organization of uh, this network as they mature even further. I, I think one of the things that's central here is that, you know, when we think of our brains as being some sort of organ, that kind of self-standing organ, it just does its thing in our skulls. Whereas in fact, what distinguishes it from the computer on my desk is that it has feedback from my legs, my, my arms, it has feedback from the real world. So are you trying to teach these mini brains how to, how to walk? Yeah, you are absolutely right. Uh, so we are uh, giving them a body. And through this body, they have the ability to sense the environment and, and acquire this information from the environment to process uh, using their own networks. Um, yeah, so that's, that's the ultimate goal, is to provide them with some kind of embodiment um, so they can continue to mature and continue to prove to be useful for our research. All right, so you've really put these brains to the test. You've taken a look at them, you've looked at them under a microscope, you've put them in contact with a, a robot so they get some feedback uh, from the world so that they can you know, learn to do things and so forth. You know, what's the bottom line? What have we learned about uh, the Neanderthals that applies to them, but not so much to us or the reverse? Yeah. So I think first, let me just say that everything that um, we're going to take from these experiments is pure speculation, right? I mean, because 
we will never know uh, because we will never see a Neanderthal back to life um, and ask him or her those questions. So it's all about the speculation. And what we are learning is that these networks uh, does happen to mature faster than modern humans. So the question is, this early maturation means anything? And what we see today in the modern world is that um, there are different species, uh, even our closest living relatives, such as the chimpanzees, that mature way faster. So a baby chimpanzee can outsmart a human baby. So we, modern humans, take a very long time to mature. And I think the organoids are telling us that if you have a specific uh, archaic version of certain genes, your neuromaturation is going to be speeded up. You're going to be faster. So that might have, uh, at certain point in, in, in human history, a big advantage if you are living in a society or in a place that's quite dangerous. So the early you get up and running, the better. So I think the reason why these archaic version no longer exist, these are extinct uh, from the genetic pool of modern humans, is because it's no longer necessary. So we have ways to keep the human brain maturing later in life. And these most likely have a huge advantage to our survival as a species. Allison, how would you reconcile uh, your, your discovery so far about Neanderthal brains and how they're organized with the fact that, you know, the archaeological evidence shows that they participated in rituals and, you know, they could make some sort of art and that sort of thing. I mean, they, they seem like, a, you know, a species you, you might have around today. They don't sound like they, they belong in the past. Yeah. And, uh, and it is true. I mean, the more we find out about them, the more we understand the fossil records, the more we realize that um, they were doing things that we do as well. But similar to other species, they do it uh, with a different intensity. There is nothing in the fossil record that suggests that they were trying to go to the moon. There is nothing in the fossil record suggesting that they were trying to build computers. So uh, I think that intensity is the difference between uh, us and the Neanderthals and all other species, by the way. Well, finally, Alison, I mean, maybe the big question for Neanderthals, obviously, we want to know what they were like, their, how smart they were and, you know, how agile they were and so forth and so on. But if somebody asks you, you know, to, to answer in two sentences or five sentences, why was it that the Neanderthals are not with us anymore? Was it because of their lack of certain abilities or was it just an accident of history? Ah, that's a great question, and um, it's a hard one, so I don't think anybody knows the right answer. My uh, hypothesis rely on uh, genetics. I think we, as time evolved, acquire certain genetic alterations that make our brains way more competitive, and we were able to adapt even better to the environment while they couldn't do it. Alison Moatri, thanks very much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Allison Watry is a neuroscientist and professor at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. So, Seth, what is uh, what's the big picture here? Well, I, for me, anyhow, I think that the big picture is, yet again, we are astonished, well, at least I'm astonished, to find out that other members of the animal kingdom, in this case an extinct animal, uh, Neanderthal, they were much closer to our abilities than we like to imagine. That's right. And, and the discoveries are helping us understand what it means to be a modern human. But if we get away from the human-centric interest in Neanderthals, 
we find that they're fascinating in their own right. You have a tribal group, family-oriented, tool-making, with evidence of verbal communication and even complex emotions. That's true. And, you know, I tend to think, or have tended to think, that the, the Neanderthals were a failed experiment, right? They, they were wiped out, and yet they were very widespread, right, all the way from Europe to Asia, and they hung around for 300,000 years. That's longer than Homo sapiens has done so far. Well, we couldn't do this show without the highly evolved abilities of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation and NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that, among other things, investigates the emergence of intelligence. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. A big thanks to our listeners and to those who have joined Big Picture Science on Patreon. Original music was composed by Dewey DeLay. If you'd like to know more about the guests you've heard, you'll find links to them on our website, bigpicturescience.org, along with past episodes of Big Picture Science. This episode is called Neanderthal in the Family. Are you advancing the astonishing concept that the mentality of primitive man compares favorably with that organ which a million years of evolutionary progress has developed in his modern counterpart? Let me assure you, for want of your own understanding, that modern man's boasting pride in his alleged advancement is based upon one hollow precept, and that is his ego. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.